Shalom, brothers and sisters. I'm Brother Sid of the Commandment Keepers Church. We have a detailed lesson prepared for our brothers and sisters internationally. The title of today's lesson is Blessed are the eyes that see. Blessed are the eyes that see. Today's lesson will ensure that we see with greater clarity the things that have been concealed. Our topic today is redemption, brothers and sisters. Redemption. We're going to start in the New Testament today. We're going to go to 2 Peter, the third chapter, in the 18th verse. Please follow us. 2 Peter, the third chapter, the 18th verse, and it reads, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there's there's so much packed into this one text. I need you to examine what title Peter decided to give the Messiah. Let's read that again. <clears throat> Second Peter, the third chapter in the 18th verse, and it reads, But grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ. To him be to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Notice, brothers and sisters, it refers to the Messiah as Lord and Savior. So there's a contrast there, brothers and sisters. Not only is he the Savior, but he is the Lord. A lot of our people, we look at him as a Savior. So I pray when I need something, when my, my family is falling apart, somebody's sick, my bills need to be paid. But when it comes to being Lord which means owner, which means dictator, we seem to not be fond of that particular idea, right? So it said you have to grow in the knowledge not only of him as Lord, but as Savior. So according to the apostle, we're reading a mandate for growth in the knowledge concerning the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, Peter urges his readers to grow in two areas, the grace of Christ and their knowledge of him. Let's take a look. Second Peter, the third chapter, the 18th verse, and it reads, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, you're seeing clearly that Peter describes Christ as both our Lord and our Savior. Not someone you put in the trunk and pull out like a spare tire when you need him. So we'll deal with that today, brothers and sisters. The topic, redemption. The title, Blessed are the eyes that see. Let's stay in Second Peter, brothers and sisters. We're going to go to Second Peter, the second chapter, the 20th verse, and it reads, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Let me read that again, brothers and sisters. Please listen to the words closely. Second Peter, the second chapter, the 20th verse, and it reads, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. So in the previous text, we read the mandate. In this text, we read the benefit of said mandate, brothers and sisters. According to the text, 
Escape from the pollutions of the world only comes through the knowledge of Christ. You see that? That's why we're going into this. This is exactly why we're going into this. Let us read that one more time, brothers and sisters. Second Peter, the second chapter, the 20th verse, and it reads, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter worse the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. So, brothers and sisters, according to the text, the negligence in application will be reciprocated with severe regression. Brothers and sisters, he said, well, listen, <laughs> if you neglect after you've already escaped, showing us what? That you can escape through the knowledge and go back in, brothers and sisters. I've seen it time and time again where brethren finds the truth of concerning himself, finds the truth concerning Christ, yet is pulled back into the world by Satan, brothers and sisters. And he tells you what? According to Peter, if you go back into that world, if you step back across that line, brothers and sisters, you will be much worse than prior to finding the truth, brothers and sisters. Do you see that? Let's go to Colossians. <clears throat> Let's go to Colossians, the first chapter, the ninth and tenth verse. And it reads, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 10 reads, That ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, be fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, Paul's prayers pinpoint the primary and paramount needs of all believers. Let's take a look at it one more time. Colossians, the first chapter in the ninth verse, and it reads, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 10 reads, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, brothers and sisters, if we examine the text closely, we see that Paul's emphasis was on development and progression. Right. If we have little spiritual discernment, we will get caught up in every spiritual disease. That's what he's breaking down here, brothers and sisters, according to the author. In order to walk worthy, we must have the ability to ascertain his will. Let us read that again. For Colossians, the first chapter, the 10th verse, and it reads, That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of the Most High God. You see, brothers and sisters, so that means this walk, you must walk worthy. That means there's a way in which is unacceptable. There's a way in which is unworthy, right, brothers and sisters? So we're going to deal with this today. Why? Because I fear that our people, they, we have a proclivity to get rocked back to sleep, brothers and sisters, where just being Israel is enough. Gentiles also, I've, I've taught many Gentiles. We, we've baptized many Gentiles. And we've seen even the Gentiles wander like sheep back into the world amongst the wolves. Never to be seen again, brothers and sisters. 
never to be seen again. Let's let's talk about the Most High's presence here. Let's go to Psalm 65 and 4. Let's go there. Here it is. We're at Psalms 65 and 4. And it reads, Blessed is the man whom thou chooseth and causeth to approach thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Let's read that again, because why? (laughs) Colossians told us what, brothers and sisters? That we needed to increase in the knowledge of God, right? Let's start with that. Let's talk about getting into his presence first. If you're going to increase in knowledge concerning him, you must know how to enter his presence, right? Psalms 65 and 4 reads, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. So according to the psalmist, approaching the presence of the king is a massive privilege. Brothers and sisters, the wording of the, the, wording of the text implies that our natural positioning is distant. I want you to take a look at that one more time, brothers and sisters. Take a look at that one more time. Psalms, the 65th chapter in the fourth verse, and it reads, Blessed is the man whom thou chooseth and causeth to approach thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. So only they who have been permitted by the king may approach brothers and sisters and if you if you if you examine it closely the blessings come subsequent to our advancement into his presence take a look at it one more time brothers and sisters psalms 65 and 4 reads blessed is the man whom thou chooseth and causeth to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. So the blessings come subsequent to our advancement, our progression into his presence, brothers and sisters. So let's deal with that. Let's deal with his presence, right? Follow us to Zechariah. Zechariah, the third chapter, the third through the fifth verse, brothers and sisters. Zechariah, the third chapter in the third verse, and it reads... Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away thy filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Verse 5 reads, And I said, Let them set a fair meat tree upon his head. So they set a fair meat tree upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, there's a couple of things we see here in Zechariah. Number one, we see that iniquity is illustrated as a filthy garment. Let us read verse four again. Zechariah, the third chapter, the fourth verse. Excuse me. Let's start at the third verse, brothers and sisters. Zechariah 3 and 3 reads, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. 
And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away thy filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. So, brothers and sisters, the text teaches us that there are, there are requirements in order to approach the throne. See, the author teaches us that your apparel reveals a lot about what? Your spiritual condition. See that, brothers and sisters? Clothing is it's, it's not just apparel, brothers and sisters. It gives insight into the soul. It gives insight into your mind. It gives insight into your heart, right? So here we learn that you cannot approach the throne any way you would like, right? Your garments must first be cleansed before you can operate as a priest. Because why? He's speaking to Joshua, the high priest here. He's telling you, listen, Joshua, your garments are filthy, okay? Unacceptable to come into my presence. So the first thing that has to happen is we have to remove the filthy garments. Take away the iniquity. What is iniquity? According to Psalms, iniquity is invisible sin. It's the sins that you harbor in your heart, brothers and sisters. So Joshua was the high priest during this time. Look at verse 5. Zechariah, the third chapter, the fifth verse, and it reads, And I said, Let them set a fair meat tree upon his head. So they set a fair meat tree upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Brothers and sisters, for those of you who don't know what a mitri is, a mitri was a head wrap for the high priest. Only the priest wore these, brothers and sisters. Now, it's not a turban. It can look like a turban from the side, but the crown of the head is open. So you'll see some Israelites what it looks like a, <clears throat> a wrap around their head where the crown is open. They get that from the Bible. Okay. It's called a mitri, brothers and sisters. It's not a turban. Okay. Now, let's go to Isaiah 61 and 10. Why? Because we're discussing the Most High's presence. And the first thing we learned is only those whom are chosen can approach the throne. Subsequent to that, we learned what? Your apparel, your garments must be clean, right? Imagine going to meet the president. Are you going to meet the president with basketball shorts on and a do-rag? <laughs> huh? If you're going to meet the, if you're going on a job interview, right? Are you going to, to a job interview with dirty clothes on that you, you just did, you know, yard work in? Exactly. So the Most High is saying, well, listen, the respect you have for that employer, the respect you have for the president, that respect you have for the Queen of England, have that level of respect or even higher for my presence. Let's go to Isaiah 61 and 10, brothers and sisters. Isaiah 61 and 10 reads, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. So the idea is that our spiritual condition is distinguished by your apparel. He's telling you, I can tell where you're going based on how you're dressed, right? It's clear when someone's going to a wedding. You can see, right? <laughs> Sister have on a wedding dress, a veil, right? Brother have on a tuxedo, right? See? 
take a look. Isaiah, the 61st chapter in the 10th verse, and it reads, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. So if you closely examine the correlation between the function and the apparel, you'll see what, brothers and sisters, that according to the text, there's a principle being discussed, and it's what? I can tell where you're headed based on how you're dressed. See? So the clothing is significant. There's a narrative all throughout the manuscript, right? Of what? Clothing, articles of clothing, put on Christ, put off darkness. If you really don't catch those and, and you think it's insignificant, you'll miss a lot of the, the principles that are hidden in the record, brothers and sisters, to make you or help you to progress in your walk. Okay? Let's go to Exodus 19 and 10. We're going to read verse 10 through verse 15, brothers and sisters. Exodus 19 and 10 reads, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And be ready against the third day, for the third day of the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. So it's clear, brothers and sisters, preparation is required before we are permitted to approach the throne. The Most High is emphasizing what? <laughs> he, he's, he's emphasizing respecting the holiness of his presence you see that where well, they're threatened with death let's take a look again let's go to Exodus 19 and 10 and it reads and the Lord said unto Moses go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. And there shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned, or shot thorough, or through whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. Verse 15, and it reads, And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. So, brothers and sisters, the Most High was illustrating the distance between sinful people and a holy God. The penalty for failing to keep distance was what? Death. <laughs> See? He said, well, listen, Moses, set up boundaries around Mount Sinai, okay? And if they cross those boundaries, they will die. He said, not only beast, he said, not only man, but beast also. Whatever it may be, if it comes across this border, it will die. Showing you what? 
<laughs> the penalty for failing to keep distance was death. The first scripture that we, one of the first scriptures that we read was what? Blessed is he whom thou chooseth to enter into your presence. See? So the Most High was showing that obedience was more important than how we feel. Okay? Now, yes, we we love the Most High and all that, right? We had the chance to, in our mind, to see the Most High. He's saying, well, listen, Moses, if they cross that line, it will be their last breath. See, we have to get back that that understanding of the seriousness of our God. The Christian church have, have really been infiltrated, brothers and sisters. It's been infiltrated where we no longer respect the Most High. We no longer fear the Most High God. We, know, we no longer love the Most High God. How do we know? Because John 14 and 15 says, If you love me, you keep my commandments. And Christians told us not to keep the commandments. Okay? So it was clear that God wanted us to demonstrate our desire for purity by putting on clean clothes and restraining desires. And yes, I said restraining desires. Take a look. Exodus, the 19th chapter in the 15th verse, and it reads, And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. So he was telling them, listen, the pleasure that come with sleep, you can't do that. (laughs) Between now and then, you cannot do that. Because why? Once that happened, if you know, if you know anything about the Old Testament, once the seed of copulation, once a man, you know, and a woman um, dealt with the pleasure that comes with sleep, you could not go into his presence until the next day, brothers and sisters. You were unclean until the next day. That's why it tells you to what? Clean, you know, subsequent to that act, you are to clean yourself. See, so the Most High was saying, not only are you going to clean your clothes, but you're going to withstand from from certain pleasures, certain acts. Okay. See, we have to get back this righteousness because why? When I look over into the Muslim community, they take very seriously their God. When I look over into the uh, Buddhist community, they take very serious their God. You see, when I look over into the satanic, you know, or the. The um, what they call the conscious community, that Egyptology garbage, right? I see them taking very serious, you know, whatever instructions they believe were delivered to them. For some reason, when it comes to the Bible, we're lackadaisical, right? We're whimsical, right? That has to be removed. That we must have a renewed mind, especially the children of Israel. Why? Because the Gentiles will learn from us. We are the standard. We should be the standard. We have not been the standard. But now, now, brothers and sisters, it's, it's high time to wake out of sleep. Let's go to Exodus 25 because we're talking about the Most High's presence, right? We're at Exodus 25 and 17. We're going to read 17 through 21. Exodus 25 and 17 reads, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub or angel on the one end, 
and the other cherub or angel on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make, even on the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look upon, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be, and thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Now, what is this referring to, brothers and sisters? If you don't, most Christians don't read the Old Testament, so they're unfamiliar with the ark of the covenant. Or the mercy seat, which is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, which is two cherubims or angels with their wings outstretched towards each other. Okay, I encourage you to go to Google and type in mercy seat or Ark of the Covenant and pull up a a picture from Google Images, brothers and sisters. Okay, do that. Why? It links with Leviticus 16 and 2. Let's go there. Leviticus, the 16th chapter in the second verse, and it reads, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. See? So in the Old Testament, the mercy seat was what? That was for the Most High's presence. Okay? According to the text, the mercy seat represented the presence of God. Let us read that again. And I need you to examine the danger of improperly approaching his throne, brothers and sisters. Leviticus, the 16th chapter, in the second verse, and it reads, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil. Before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So, brothers and sisters, appearing in the presence of God without his order was always reciprocated with death. And the Most High was instructing who? Aaron, the high priest, that you don't just walk into my presence. (laughs) Okay, you don't have that right. You don't just run up. You don't just walk up on me like that. You end up dead. <laughs> See. Why are we going into this? Because we need people to understand how serious our God is. He's not to be played with. OK. He's not to be played with. And see, this is why Christians say don't read the Old Testament. OK. This is why. Because why then you would fear God the way the Bible instructs you to do so. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, brothers and sisters. So according to the text, the closer we get to God, the more important our obedience becomes. I'm going to read that one more time, and then we're going to jump down to verse 14 and 15 in the same chapter. We're here at Leviticus 16 and 2, and it reads, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, that he die not, that he die not. Why? For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. 
You see that, brothers and sisters? So the closer we get to the Most High's presence or the presence of the Most High God, the more important, the more vital our obedience becomes. Because if you enter into his presence improperly, it will be reciprocated. <laughs> and I don't think you're ready, you know, I don't know any man or woman that have arms long enough to box with God was showing you how important his presence was, right? And how you approached him was. You couldn't just approach him any type of way, okay? He's not the God of, you know, Allah, which is a rock. <laughs> He's not the God of the Buddhists or, or Buddha, okay? Our God is the God of gods. And if you walk up on him the wrong way, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament, there were serious or severe ramifications. There were consequences, brothers and sisters. Let's jump down to verse 14 through 16. Let's learn. Let's see. How do I enter into his presence? Right. In the Old Testament. Leviticus, the 16th chapter, the 14th verse. We're going to read 14 through 16. Leviticus 16 and 14 reads, And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle the blood with his fingers seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Verse 16 reads, And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Mm. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're actually following along because the Torah teaches us that nobody could approach the Most High without a blood sacrifice. No one. Only the blood of an unblemished sacrifice could repel the wrath of the Almighty God. Let us read that again. I don't know if you caught it. Leviticus, the 16th chapter, the 14th verse, and it reads, And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15 reads, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and doeth with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. Verse 16 reads, And he shall make an atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel. And because of their transgressions in all of their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Now, brothers and sisters, remember, in the second verse, in the 16th chapter of Leviticus, it told you that his presence would come down where? On the mercy seat, right? <laughs> So the mercy seat, when you learn about the mercy seat in the Bible, it's speaking about the presence of God. 
See, now what we just read prefigures the full atonement that Christ would make. When you read Leviticus 16 and 14 through 16, this is a prefiguration of the Messiah's atonement. He's teaching us that it will always cost us something to approach the throne. It will always cost because here it was in the Old Testament. If you approached him without blood of something unblemished, you will take your last breath at that moment. See that? We need you to understand the seriousness of our God. Okay? I'm speaking to Jews and Gentiles right now. I'm speaking to Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because our people focus more. They find out they're Israel and they focus more on the law than they focus on God himself. <laughs> they focus more on the law and Moses than Christ himself. Don't be that. Don't be that Israelite. Don't be a super brew. As I, as I like to call them. Don't be the Hebrew police. We focus more on the laws of Moses than entering the presence of God. See, and that's a shame because here it is. You have Christians who are extremists to the left degree, right? Where nothing matters. And then when we come into the knowledge of who we are concerning ourselves or our heritage, we become extremists to the right side. Where everything is about, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't wear this, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. And all that's fine, brothers and sisters, because trust me, I follow every law in this Bible that I've seen, okay? But that's not the purpose. That's not going to get you in, brothers and sisters. You cannot be declared righteous. You cannot be justified by the law. It's impossible, okay? It's impossible. He's telling you, it will always cost you something. In order for you to approach the throne. Let's go to Romans 6 and 23. Brothers and sisters. Romans the 6th chapter in the 23rd verse. And it reads. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God. Is eternal life. Through Christ our Lord. Let me read that again, brothers and sisters. Romans, the sixth chapter, the 23rd verse, and it reads, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. So, brothers and sisters, the wages refers to a payment. When a person works, the person receives a wage or payment for the work, right? So the work of sinfulness earns a paycheck of death. According to the Paul, um, excuse me, according to the Apostle Paul. So we're seeing clearly the ultimate penalty earned by one sin is death. You see that, brothers and sisters? This is why the Most High was saying in Leviticus, the 16th chapter, there must be blood before you approach me. If you try to approach me without blood, it will be your blood spilled on the ground. Let's go to second Ezra's because we talked about the wages of sin. Where did that sin begin and how does it affect us today? Brothers and sisters, we're, we're here in second Ezra's in the Apocrypha. Ezra's is the same Ezra from the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, we're here at second Ezra's, the third chapter, the 21st through the 22nd verse. And it reads for the first Adam bearing a wicked heart transgressed and was overcome. And so be all they that are born of him. Thus infirmity 
was made permanent in the law. Also in the heart of the people with the malignity of the root so that the good departed away and the evil abode still. So brothers and sisters, according to the author, a law was instituted in our flesh when Adam sinned. Listen again. Second Ezra, the third chapter, the 21st verse, and it reads, For the first Adam, bearing a wicked heart, transgressed and was overcome. And so be all they that are born of him. Thus infirmity was made permanent. <clears throat> Thus infirmity was made permanent. And the law also in the heart of the people with the malignity of the root. So that the good departed away and the evil abode still. See, so according to the text, we have inherited a evil spirit, a, a corrupt nature that oppresses us, brothers and sisters. According to the text, we're automatically predisposed or inclined to what's wrong first. Now, we all come from Adam, but specifically the children of Israel. Our bloodline is close, you know, is close with Adam more so than any other people. So we have this wicked heart more so than anyone, brothers and sisters. Okay? Let's go to 2nd Ezra's. 7 and 48, brothers and sisters. Second Ezra, the 7th chapter, the 48th verse, and it reads, O thou Adam, what hast thou done? For, for though it was thou that sinned, thou art not fallen alone, but we all that come of thee. Let me read that again, brothers and sisters. Second Ezra, the 7th chapter, the 48th verse, and it reads, O thou Adam, what hast thou done? For though it was thou that sinned, thou art not fallen alone, but we all that come of thee. So according to the author, the unethical behavior of Adam affected his, his entire progeny. Brothers and sisters, you see that? The text highlights the hereditary corruption of the flesh that came subsequent to Adam's rebellion. Brothers and sisters, let me read that again. Second Ezra, the 7th chapter, the 48th verse, and it reads, O thou Adam, what hast thou done? For though it was thou that sinned, thou art not fallen alone, but we all that come of thee. See? So according to the author, the hereditary nature of Adam's sin condemns all of his progeny to what? Death. Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. You see that, brothers and sisters? Brothers and sisters, follow us to Romans, the fifth chapter, the 14th through the 21st verse. Romans 5 and 14 reads, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned. After the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him that was to come. Let us read that again, brothers and sisters. Listen to listen to this again, please. Romans 5 and 14 reads, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Who is the figure of him who is to come? 
Brothers and sisters, Paul is saying the consequences of Adam's sin are experienced by those who had not done what Adam did. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? <laughs> Let me read that again. Romans, the fifth chapter in the 14th verse, and it reads, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Verse 15 reads, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Christ, hath abounded unto many. So the text is telling you, if all people could, if all people could be on the hit list of death because of one man's sin, then all people can be on what? Be on the flip side of that through one man's what? One man's sacrifice. If we can all be counted dead through one man's sin, then we all can be counted alive by one man's sacrifice. That's what he's breaking down here. Take a look at verse 16. Romans 5 and 16 reads, And not as it were, excuse me, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So the idea of these texts is to highlight the superiority of the blessings procured by Christ to the evils occasioned by Adam. So what you'll see, brothers and sisters, is it's, it's comparing what? It's comparing Adam's transgression and Christ's obedience. You see that? And how it affects you and I. Let me read that again. Romans, the fifth chapter, the 16th verse, and it reads, And not as it was by one that sinned, so, it, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 17 reads, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Christ. So the author highlights the impact of one act of disobedience versus the impact of one act of obedience. Verse 18, and it reads, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So Paul wants to stress it was Adam's act, not our independent acts, that brings the condemnation. You were condemned before you were born, brothers and sisters. <laughs> before you ever sinned, you were condemned. Why? Because of your father, our father, Adam, right? Take a look at verse 19. Romans 5 and 19 reads, For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Verse 20 reads, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin have reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness 
unto eternal life by Christ our Lord. So brothers and sisters, the effects of God's grace and the gift of righteousness surpasses the results of Adam's sin. This is what we're seeing. The negative effects of Adam's sin are here mainly to help us see the positive effects of Christ's righteousness. So what we saw in verse 15 was Adam's transgression was contrasted with the grace received by Christ. In the, in the 16th verse, you see judgment and condemnation contrasted with justification. In the 17th verse, you see the death through Adam contrasted with reigning in life through Christ, right? In verse 18, we see that all men were condemned through Adam. It was contrasted with all men being justified through Christ. You see? So this whole chapter, look at verse 19. Let me read verse 19. Romans 5 and 19 reads, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. See? So we see the many sinners contrasted with the many righteous. You see that? When you look at verse 20 and 21, let's read that again. Romans 5 and 20 reads, Moreover, the law entered, and the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin have reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Christ our Lord. So we see the triumph of grace over law and sin, brothers and sisters. The law, sin, and grace. We see grace, righteousness, and eternal life. You see that contrast, brothers and sisters? What is it telling you? Look at the first verse that we read again. Look at verse 14. Romans 5 and 14 reads, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come? Who is the figure of him that was to come? Paul is telling you that Adam was a prefiguration of him that was to come. That's Christ. That's why in Ezra it called him the first Adam. See? Adam was a type of Christ. Everything that Adam failed at, Christ succeeded at, brothers and sisters. You see that, brothers and sisters? <laughs> see, Adam was supposed to be Christ. Everything that Christ did, Adam was supposed to be when God created him. You see? Let us show you something. Let's go to John 8 and 34, please. John the 8th chapter, the 34th, the 34th verse, and it reads, Christ answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever committed sin is the servant of sin. So, brothers and sisters, according to Christ, sin is analogous with what? Bondage. Let us read it again. John, the eighth chapter, the 34th verse, and it reads, Christ answered them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of of sin. Brothers and sisters, the first thing Christ wanted us to understand was our need for redemption. See? Before we can understand redemption, you 
you first must understand bondage. <laughs> See, Christians don't even understand bondage. They go into Christ as our kinsman, redeemer, and all that. Okay, what is he redeeming you from? <laughs> See? According to the law, redemption from bondage could only come through the next of kin. We're going to show you that. Well, the Bible's going to show you that. According to the law. What is the law? The Torah. According to the Torah, redemption from bondage could only come through the next of kin. So someone is a slave. They can only be redeemed by what? A family member, a kin. Let us show you. Let's go to Leviticus 25 and 48. Keep hold. Hold John 8 and 34 because why? It told us that we were servants to sin. So we were in bondage to sin, right? Now go to Leviticus 25 and 48. We'll read 48 and 49. Listen closely, brothers and sisters. Leviticus 25 and 48 reads, After that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. Verse 49 reads, either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him. Or if he be able, he may redeem himself. So, brothers and sisters, this was the law. <laughs> right. If somebody was a slave, if somebody had to go into slavery because they owed somebody. Right. Or servitude. Let's use servitude. If they had to go into servitude. Because they owe somebody money or they did something unto them in which they were unable to pay a debt. It tells you that a family member could come redeem them, which means buy them back. Redeem means to buy back. Okay. Let's read that again. Leviticus 25 and 48 reads, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him or if he be able, he may be he may redeem himself. See, that's the law. Now, remember, Christ said what <laughs> he who committed sin is a servant of sin. So we've been sold under sin. Right. And Leviticus tells us clearly the right of redemption the purchase of liberation belonged to who? The nearest of kin. Let us read it again. Leviticus 25 and 48 reads, after that, he after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him. Or any that is nigh of kin unto him, of his family, may redeem him. Or if he's able, he may redeem himself. You see that, brothers and sisters? The author teaches us that emancipation could only come from a blood relative. See? In redemption, there's a divine exchange. One man pays the price so another man can go free. You see the importance of the Old Testament? You see the importance because you can't fully comprehend the significance of what Christ has done. If you ignore the Old Testament and just, you know, use Paul's records. Listen, our church, we don't follow Paul. OK, <laughs> we're following Christ and we utilize the entire Bible. But I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, when Christians go into the Bible, listen to him clearly. 
They're going into Colossians. They're going into Romans. They're going into Ephesians. See, that, those are all the books they go into. They never deal with the gospel. They never deal with the Old Testament. And it's clear that you don't understand the New Testament without the Old. There's no way possible that you can open up a book in the tenth, you know, in the twenty-fifth chapter, and understand what transpired before. See, we're showing you that what, according to the law, according to Moses's law, only kin could redeem a brethren or brother out of, uh, cap, uh, you know, servitude. See, it said after he is sold, meaning what? He is sold. He is a servant. That he still can be redeemed if one of his brethren. Or his near kin redeem him, which means pay the price for him to go free. You see that? Let's go to Luke now, brothers and sisters. Now that we established that kin, only kin, could redeem a man from bondage, look at Luke 3 and 23. Luke 3 and 23 reads, In Christ himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now look at that, brothers and sisters. I actually pulled this scripture up. I actually pulled this scripture up in your Bible, in the King James Version. Let me read that again. Luke 3 and 23 reads, And Christ himself began to be about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. So it was clear that Christ's father was Joseph. Okay? That's clear. <laughs> Jump down to 38, brothers and sisters, because we're just dealing with the lineage, right, of Christ. Luke 3 and 38 reads, Which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So Luke 3 goes from Christ all the way back to who? Adam. Brothers and sisters. So it's clear that any redeemer has to be of the bloodline of Adam. See, the author Luke goes into genealogy to prove the validity of Christ as a legal kinsman redeemer. So when Christians say, well, no, he didn't have a father. Well, if he didn't have a father, that means he's not the son of Adam. That means he can't redeem any of Adam's lineage, any of Adam's progeny. See, and this for, this for Gentiles here. Because Gentiles, if he doesn't have a father that leads him back to Adam, then prepare to go to hell. Prepare to go to hell. Because why? Israel, we're good. <laughs> we're good. Because why? He was an Israelite. He was a near kinsman to us. See? He was a son of Judah. Right? Who was a son of who? Jacob. See, so Christ is near kinsmen to the children of Israel. But you Gentiles who want to believe in virgin birth deception, immaculate conception, I call it the immaculate deception. Listen, if he doesn't have a father, then he doesn't have a lineage. It's impossible for him to be a king. Why? <laughs> because the kingship gets passed down to who? The son. I encourage you, go study Joseph. Joseph was on the lineage of kings. Go look at Matthew, the first chapter. If the, if the Jews during that time were not subjugated to the Romans, Joseph would have been the king. And Christians, you know, talk about Joseph as, as if he's some stepdad on the side. 
when this brother was a king. And that made what? That made Christ the king of the Jews. Why? Because his father would have been king of the Jews. His father, Joseph. Well, let us show you something here. Let's go to Romans 5 and 8. We're going to read verse 8 through 12. Romans 5 and 8 reads, But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Romans 5 and 10 reads, For if we, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11 reads, And not only so, but we are also in joy. We also joy in God. Through the Lord Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So, look at this closely, brothers and sisters. I understand that Paul's writings are hard to be understood. Guess what? The Christians know that too. That's why they always go to Paul. Peter tells you that Paul's record is hard to be understood for the unlearned because he was just that much of a scholar, brothers and sisters. So brothers and sisters need a teacher, okay? They need a teacher. And and listen, it doesn't have to be here, brothers and sisters. But if you think you can just open up Romans <laughs> and read that and understand that without a teacher, and guess what? Most of the teachers don't understand it. <laughs> Most of the Christian pastors don't understand Paul. They know that they can manipulate Paul because his level of his his level his level of knowledge was so high that they can twist things, right? They can twist things to make you believe whatever their doctrine is. See, Christ, you can't twist his. He was he was clear. He was direct and straight to the point. But they know that Paul it's hard to be understood. Romans is one of the hardest records to read, brothers and sisters. Why do we go here then? We went here to show you that this text, these texts, show us that reconciliation, redemption came through what? Blood. I'm going to read 8 through 12 again. Romans, the fifth chapter, the eighth verse reads, But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 read, Much more than being now justified by his blood, justified by his blood, justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10 reads, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11 reads, And not only so, but we also joy in God through the Lord Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So the text tells you that all men and women and children need redemption. See that? We all need redemption. Okay? And redemption comes through blood. 
We need to point that out. Let us show you. Let's go to John 19 and 1. I need you to look at this closely, brothers and sisters. The title of today's lesson, Blessed are the Eyes That See. The topic, Redemption. We're at John, the 19th chapter, the first through the third verse. John, the 19th chapter, the first verse, and it reads, Then Pilate therefore took Christ and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Look at this, brothers and sisters. Look at this. Hmm? Let me read that again. John, the 19th chapter, the first through the third verse, and it reads, Then Pilate therefore took Christ and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Now, the part I want to deal with is verse 2. It says, And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns. Right? Brothers and sisters, throughout Scripture, thorns symbolize not sin, but the consequences of sin. See? The crown of thorns upon the head of Christ is an illustration of the fruit of our sin. How do we know this? Brothers and sisters, there is a correlation between the curse of thorns and the crown of thorns. Okay. These, you know, these heathens, these Gentiles plaited a crown of thorns, pulled it onto his head and said, hell, king of the Jews. They had no clue what they were doing, brothers and sisters. No clue, but it shows you that the most high is in control. How do we know? Let's go to Genesis 3 and 17, because why? We, let's go look at these thorns. What do these thorns represent? Since these heathens would like to put a crown of thorns on our Messiah, right? What does it represent? Let's go to Genesis 3 and 17, brothers and sisters. We're going to read 17 through 19. Genesis 3 and 17 reads, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Verse 18 reads, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken. For the dust thou art, and unto the dust thou shalt return. Brothers and sisters, we're introduced to thorns in the third chapter of the Bible. This is the first time it's ever mentioned, right? I'm going to read that again. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. 
In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So, brothers and sisters, clearly from Scripture, we see that thorns are a result of the curse brought about by Adam's sin. There was no such thing as thorns before this. See? So the numerous references to thorns throughout the Bible remind us of the historical origin of sin and the curse that followed. You see that, brothers and sisters? Why Why would the gospel, why would the, um, why would the apostles of the synoptic gospels, why would they put that in there? Why would they feel the need to put a crown of thorns? Hmm? Why did it why was it a why was it a crown of thorns? Why wasn't it a crown of something else? Why did they choose thorns? See? Thorns represented what? The consequences for sin. Take a look at this, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Matthew twenty seven and twenty seven. We're gonna have we're gonna read twenty seven through twenty nine, okay? Matthew twenty seven in 27 reads, Then the soldiers of the governor took Christ into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on, a scar- put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited the crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Brothers and sisters, he wore the crown of thorns to display how he bore our sin. Christ wore the crown of thorns to display his power over sin. Take a look at it again. We've already showed in Genesis, the third chapter, right? Thorns was the representation of our, you know, of our sin. It was the consequences of our sin or Adam's sin, rather, right? There was no such thing as thorns before that. So the fact that they could affect, they could find thorns to plaque to put on his head was the entire reason why he died. <laughs> See? He died because Adam sinned. You see that, brothers and sisters? Let me read that again. Matthew, the 27th chapter, the 27th verse, and it reads, Then the soldiers of the governor took Christ into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Brothers and sisters, are you seeing that? Do you see how that links flawlessly with Genesis, the third chapter? The crown of thorns, brothers and sisters, is more specifically foreshadowed in the story of Abraham's sacrifice of his son, Isaac. We're going to talk about that, brothers and sisters. Because, see, this was all a foreshadowing. What transpired in Genesis was foreshadowed at Calvary. Brothers and sisters. Let's go to Genesis, the 22nd chapter, brothers and sisters. 
We're at Genesis, the 22nd chapter, the 11th through the 13th verse. Listen closely. Genesis 22 and 11 reads, And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. Verse 12 reads, And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Brothers and sisters, thorns that were a direct result of man's original sin are what are wrapped around the crown of a ram. I need you to look at this closely, brothers and sisters. <laughs> the Most High, I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean the Bible. I mean it's it is the finest piece of literature I have ever read, brothers and sisters. It really is, because there's over forty. This goes to forty different authors of the Bible, but the narrative is monolithic. How is that possible? How is it possible to have a plethora, you know, 20, 30 people, you know, in the, you know, writing the Bible, right? And then what? The narrative stays monolithic from Genesis to Revelations, brothers and sisters. Hmm? I'm going to show you. Genesis 22 and 11 reads, and the Lord, excuse me, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold him. And behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> you know what a thicket is? A thicket is like a bramble, a bush with thorns in it, <laughs> with prickles in it. You see that? The crown of thorns vividly symbolizes or symbolizes the curse of sin being placed on the head of Christ. You see this ram here, brothers and sisters? The ram got caught by the thorns on the crown. That gave Abraham what? A sacrifice. Why even put that the thicket was on his horns? <laughs> see, the head of the Messiah was crowned with thorns just as the head of this ram was. See, so Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. So the Most High said, well, listen, I'll be willing to sacrifice my son. And what does he do? He sends him a ram caught up by the horns with what? With a, a bramble or with a thicket of thorns wrapped around his horns to hold him into place. Here we see foreshadowing of the crown of thorns. 
the thorns around the horns preserve the ram in order to be considered unblemished and an unacceptable for sacrifice. Excuse me, and acceptable for sacrifice. Why? Because remember, anything that was sacrificed had to be unblemished. So if that thorn was around its leg, see that, or around its neck, then there would have been blood. It would already be bleeding, therefore making it blemished. <laughs> look, look how detailed the Bible is. Anyone who knows the Bible knows that only unblemished animals, only clean, unblemished animals. So you couldn't have a blind goat or one with a, you know, one leg is missing or whatever. One horn is gone. No, nah, the most I don't deal with that. Most I don't deal with that. OK, so the fact that this ram was caught by the horns, the most high preserved that ram. As unblemished and acceptable for a sacrifice. <laughs> Christians. You need to start reading the Old Testament again. Okay. The only thing Christians tell you about Christ. Is that he died on the cross for their sins. How many ways are you going to retwist that message? Why did he Why did he have to die for our sins? Why? What were the prophecies concerning him? See. What obstacles was he facing? See, Christians just go straight to the end. Calvary. And that's why the church is dying. That's why the numbers are dwindling. Brothers and sisters. You see? Let's go to Deuteronomy 17 and 1. To prove this. Deuteronomy 17 and 1 reads, Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock, or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoriteness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Let's read that again. Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter, the first verse, and it reads, Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoriteness. For that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. So there's a reminder that only perfect sacrifices without spot or blemish are permitted, brothers and sisters. So the lesson for all people today in such a passage is simply that God is entitled to receive our very best. See that? Closely examine the qualifications required in animals Destined for sacrifice. Deuteronomy. The 17th chapter. The first verse. And it reads. Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. Any bullock or sheep. Wherein is blemish. Or any evil favoredness. For that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Mm. Now see that. The title of today's lesson, Blessed Are the Eyes That See. Blessed are the eyes that see, right? And the topic is redemption, brothers and sisters. Many people will not be able to see what you're seeing right now, brothers and sisters. Why? Because there's no spirit. The Holy Spirit is nowhere to be found. And some things, most things, the deepness of the Bible, the hidden mysteries of the Bible can only be revealed by the Holy Spirit. 
So I'm not getting every, you know, I'm not thinking that each person that comes across this broadcast is going to agree. We understand that. But what we do at the Commandment Keepers Church is we let the scriptures do the talking. Each lesson we do, you're probably getting maybe 40 scriptures, 35 to 45 scriptures, each teaching. Brothers and sisters, it would take you a whole year to get 40 scriptures from the Christian church. <laughs> they go into two scriptures and then start passing the plate around and start talking about testimonies and what God told me this morning and all this. I'm like, brother, I mean, I didn't, we didn't come here for all that, brother. Okay. We came here for food. Spiritual food. We didn't come here to hear about what God told you personally when you was 22 years old. Right? This is what they do, brothers and sisters. Pass the plate around about 10, 22 times by the time you leave. See? Our church are going to go into the scriptures and the scriptures will make it clear. Because why? Brothers and sisters, you know the truth when you hear it. You know the truth. Now, whether you want to agree with it or not is something else entirely. But you know the truth when you hear, brothers and sisters. Let's go to John 18 and 35. John, the 18th chapter, the 35th through the 38th verse. And it reads, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Christ answered, My kingdom. It's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Christ answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth Heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Brothers and sisters, Pilate judged Christ and found him innocent of the charges leveled against him. Here we see that Pilate, in accordance with the sacrificial laws of substitution, declares Christ without blemish. Yeah, I see that, brothers and sisters. According to the Old Testament, only a sacrifice without flaw would be permitted. We just read that in Deuteronomy 17. Right? You see? Let's go to John 19 and 4, brothers and sisters. John 19 and 4 reads, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you. That we may know, excuse me, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Christ forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold this man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Mm. Brothers and sisters, Pilate, a heathen Gentile, has three times judged the intended sacrifice as without fault. 
This is not coincidence. This is prophetic fulfillment, brothers and sisters. Examine the repetitive acknowledgement that Christ was innocent. Without that innocent, you and I could not be redeemed, brothers and sisters. Why? Because the law says that any substitutionary sacrifice must be without fault in order to be permitted. You see that, brothers and sisters? So if you had a sinner out there and he claimed he was going to die on the cross for our sins, that wouldn't work. He would just be dying. Because why? He's blemished. I'm blemished. You're blemished. Only an unblemished lamb, only an unblemished sacrifice would be accepted. You see this? Further proof. Let's go to Leviticus, brothers and sisters. Follow us to, uh, let's go to Leviticus, the 22nd chapter, please. We're going to start at, um, let's start at 19. Leviticus 22 and 19. Why? Because we said that the Torah announces or makes a proclamation that when it comes to substitutionary sacrifice, that means a sacrifice that the Most High allows to substitute. So instead of you, you can put another animal or another man or something like that. It must be unblemished. Right? Or it's illegal. It's unacceptable. Right? Let's take a look. We're at Leviticus, the 22nd chapter, the 19th verse, and it reads, Ye shall offer at your own will a male without blemish of the beeves, of the sheep, or of the goats. But whatsoever hath a blemish, thou shalt ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. And whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a free will offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. Brothers and sisters, here we see the significance of Pilate's declaration. See, so anyone who understood the sacrificial system would have immediately understood the reference. When Pilate came out numerous times saying, I find no fault in him, what, he, what was he saying? He was saying, there's no blemish here. Y'all can sacrifice him. There's no blemish. I can find. I can see. So according to Pilate, Christ was uniquely qualified. To be a substitutionary sacrifice in accordance with the laws of Moses. You see that? So don't tell me the law is done away with. <laughs> because Christ went out of his way. Not only Christ, but the Most High went out of his way. To make sure everything that Christ did was in, in, was in accordance to the law. Okay? Let's go to Ephesians. The second chapter, the 11th through the 16th verse. Ephesians 2 and 11 reads, Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, here we read the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles through Christ. Listen to this closely. Ephesians 2 and 11 reads, Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past 
Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Verse 16 reads, And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So, brothers and sisters, in verse 13, the text teaches us that the ability to approach the throne only comes by the blood of an unblemished lamb. Let me read that again. Ephesians 2 and 13 reads, But now in Christ, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. See? So you're able to approach by the blood of Christ. Remember, Leviticus said, Listen, you must put blood on the mercy seat in order to approach me. If you come into my presence without blood, this will be your last breath. So even now it's telling you we're made nigh unto the Most High by the blood. So guess what? The Most High didn't change. The Most High didn't change. Okay, He just allowed for a substitute. See? So the price of redemption is blood. And only the blood of a perfect sacrifice was acceptable to effect redemption. See? Because Christ came through Adam, he was able to redeem all who came through Adam. Now, if he didn't have a father, he couldn't have come through Adam. He couldn't have come through Adam. Because why? There's, the woman has no seed. Okay? So the man or the male determines race. Right? He, he determines uh, gender. He determines nationality. All that. Okay, so if you have a white dad, no matter if it's a black woman or whatever the case is, you're white. If you have a black dad, and you know it's a Chinese woman or a white woman, that son is going to be Judah. That son is going to be considered black, because why? The living organism, it, the living organism, is in the man's loins, not in the woman. Go back to science, brothers and sisters. Go back. Let's go to Romans 11 and 11. Romans 11 and 11 reads, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Brothers and sisters, the topic here that Paul is speaking of is our people. He's saying, yes, Israel is down. They've fallen. But God have not cast them away. Because why? You'll hear in the Christian church that what? God got rid of his people. He got a new people because, because the Israelites didn't believe. And now he's dealing with the church. So his new people is the church. So they'll say everywhere you see Israel in the New Testament is the church. What scripture is that? <laughs> what scripture is that? And you know what? That's anti-Semitic. 
Okay, so if I hear you saying that, then I may have to call the National Defense League, <laughs> okay, for you being anti-Semitic, saying that God got a new people. Romans 11 and 11 reads, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Verse 12 reads, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Brothers and sisters, Paul presents it here. There's a difference between stumbling and falling. Take a look. Romans 11 and 11 reads, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? See, so according to the text, the temporary fall of Israel was fraught with the richest blessings to the rest of the world. So all the Gentiles got rich, brothers and sisters, through our fall. And it's clear. They're exploiting us. Go look. Go to the community, our communities. What do you see there? Everyone is getting rich. All the other nations are there. Right? The Arabs, they got the corner stores, right? They got the corner stores and the gas stations, right? Then you got the, what, the, the Asians. What are they dealing with? The beauty supply. When you go to the beauty supply that's aimed at black women, you got Asians in there, right? And what else do they have? They get they doing the nails, right? <laughs> see, you see that brothers and sisters. They got the liquor stores, so everyone have their hand in our community. Of course, the white man he have most of everything. But you go into our community, you see Arabs there, right, with the gas stations and the liquor stores, right, the corner stores. You got the Asians there doing nails and all that. Chicken carry out and all this. I mean, Chinese takeout and all that. Where I'm from, at least. So everyone have a hand in this. Everyone has gotten rich off of our ignorance. Because why? When you find out, okay, the Bible say no Christmas. Guess what? <laughs> no more Christmas trees being bought. No more pork being bought. See, and this is why. They're trying to keep you away from this Bible. This is why they're trying to keep you away from your identity, Israel, because they understand it economically, it would destroy them economically. If we just got on God's path on what to do and what not to do, what to eat and what not to eat, what to celebrate and what not to celebrate, they understand that their entire and their entire economics, you know, it would fall. Because it was built on the back of us. We just wanted to show you that according to the author, the diminishing of Israel was the, uh, was the aggrandizement of the Gentiles. I'm going to read that again. Romans 11 and 12 reads, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? See that? Paul has shown that the Most High God 
is still working through a remnant of Israel today. He didn't cast us all off, brothers and sisters. So if a pastor say that, then he's a bold-faced liar. He's a bold-faced liar. Let's go to Isaiah 59 and 20. Isaiah 59 and 20 reads, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Listen to it again. Who did it say was coming? Isaiah 59 and 20 reads, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgressions, where? In Jacob, saith the Lord. Brothers and sisters, according to the law of redemption, a redeemer must be a kinsman to whom he came to redeem. Right? So Christ took on the seed of Abraham to fulfill this requirement to be our kinsman redeemer. According to the law of redemption, it can only come by, you know, the hand of a kinsman. See? According to the Torah, according to the law, redemption could only come by the hand of a kinsman. Go read that. Go study that. And if guess what? If you find otherwise, give us an email. Give us an email at commandmentkeepers, the number one, the number eight, at hotmail.com. See, this is important information here, brothers and sisters. This is why it matters who Christ is. This is why it matters what family he came from. This is why it matters that he has a father, a physical father, brothers and sisters, right? I'm going to read that again. Isaiah 59 and 20 reads, And the Redeemer shall come to, to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Most High. See? Let's go to Hebrews, brothers and sisters. The second chapter, the 11th verse. Hebrews 2 and 11 reads, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Verse 12 reads, Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, and I will sing praise unto thee. Let's look at verse 16. Well, actually, let's read verse 11 again, because the first thing the author establishes is kinship. Take a look at it. Hebrews 2 and 11 reads, For both he and that, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. See, that's the kinship being established. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 reads, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church, I will sing praise unto thee. Jump to verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 reads, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. See? Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. See, you see that, brothers and sisters? Here he highlights the legality of his authorization to be our kinsman redeemer. 
See, so when people are trying to say he's God and all that, Christ is not God, okay? <laughs> he never said he was God. He came in flesh and blood. Why? Because he had to. It was no way for him to redeem us if he came as, you know, some angelic being without a father. Take a look at this again. Let me read verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So the author of Hebrews puts an emphasis on bloodline. Understanding the bloodline is what gave authorization. You see that? Being the seed of Abraham, he could redeem the children of Abraham. Those who need to be redeemed. It's clear. Look around it. Look at it in our communities. Who, you know, does it look like we need redemption? You see? Brothers and sisters, let's go to Numbers 35. We're going to read 16 through 21, okay? Numbers 35 and 16. Verse 16 reads, And if he smite him with an instrument of iron, so that he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he smite him with throwing a stone, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Verse 18 reads, Or if he smite him with a hand, if he smite him, with a hand weapon of wood, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Verse 19 reads, listen, the revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meeteth him, he shall slay him. Look at that, brothers and sisters. The first thing we read is a civil law for retribution, brothers and sisters. Here we're reading the law for retributive justice. Let me read that again. Numbers 35 and 16 reads, And if he smite him with an instrument of iron so that he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Verse 17 reads, And if he smite him with a throwing stone wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Verse 18 reads, Or if he smite him with a hand weapon of wood, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Take a look at verse 19, brothers and sisters. Verse 19 reads, The revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer when he meeteth him. He shall slay him. So, Look at this closely, brothers and sisters. The text is telling you where wrong has been done, restitution could only be exacted by the next of kin. Take a look. When it says the revenger of blood, that's your next of kin. Let me read that again. Verse 19 says, The revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meeteth him, he shall slay him. But if he thrust him of hatred or hurl at him by laying of weight that he die." Or in enmity smite him with his hand, that he die, he that smote him shall surely be put to death, for he is a murderer. The revenger of blood shall slay the murderer when he meeteth him. So, brothers and sisters, according to 
biblical hermeneutics, Hebrew hermeneutics. Let's say that somebody killed your brother. The Bible says that his uh, his kinsmen could go kill him. You see that? It could only be, anyone couldn't just go kill him. It had to be a, a kinsman. You see that, brothers and sisters? A kinsman could go redeem you or could hurt somebody, with, you know, give justice, essentially. So if somebody killed your mother or your father or your sister, your brother or your child, right? Then the bloodline, somebody from their blood would be able to go execute them. You know, execute judgment, justice, just judgment. This was the Bible, the Old Testament, eye for an eye. And it's telling you, listen, if you kill somebody up in here, you got to worry out for their family. Because one of the next of kin going to come light you up like a Christmas tree. See? So not only the prosecution, but the execution of the murderer is committed to the next of kin. So under this law, when someone intentionally put another person to death, the slain person's kinsman would have the right to put the murderer to death. See? The kinsman redeemer was obliged to avenge the blood of a murdered relative. That's why it said, let me read it again. Verse 18 through 21 reads, Or if he smite him with a hand weapon of wood, wherewith he may die and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Verse 19 reads, The revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer when he meeteth him, and he shall slay him. You see, brothers and sisters? The revenger of blood. So that means you can revenge blood. If somebody kill your family member, right? You had the right to revenge blood. See? Let's go to Zechariah, brothers and sisters. The second chapter, the eighth verse. Zechariah 2 and 8 reads, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Brothers and sisters, this what we're reading, this is anticipatory of an impending judgment. We see that by law, our kinsman redeemer can exact retributive justice. I'm sorry to tell you, Gentiles, but that's what's going to happen. That's what's getting ready to happen. Okay? We just read that if you kill us, right, or have killed us, Guess what happens? Our kinsman is able to come in exact judgment. Let's read it again. Zechariah, the second chapter, the eighth verse, and it reads, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts have sent me. You see that? I need you to closely examine the motive behind this restitution, brothers and sisters. Examine it closely. I'm going to read verse 8. 
For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory have he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. So remember, a kinsman redeemer could legally seek out the death of a person responsible for the murder uh, responsible for the murder of his kin. You see this, brothers and sisters? And that's why I pointed out that Christ came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he is our kin. And if you continue to destroy his people, guess what? <laughs> Retributive justice coming from the Messiah. And it will happen. Now, we're not saying all Koreans and all white people and all that. No, we're not saying it. If you get on the right side, which is help God's people, right? Acknowledge God's people as God's people, right? Follow his law, statutes, and commandments. Then you should be able to evade the judgment. But the most of these people will be judged. They will be judged. Because you know what's being said behind closed doors. You know what's being done behind closed doors. Let's go to Luke 1 and 68. Luke, the first chapter, the 68th verse. We're going to read 68 through 74. Luke 1 and 68 reads, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and have raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant, uh, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Brothers and sisters, when he returns, it will be with the redemption of Israel in mind. See, and people say, are you saved? Let me show. No, you're not saved. <laughs> okay. You're not saved. Let me show you what being saved is, according to God. Luke 1 and 68 reads, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets. Which had been since the world began. That we should be saved from our enemies. That we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all that hate us. Brothers and sisters. No other nation has enemies that hate them. It's only us. Brothers and sisters. That's what salvation is. Christ is coming to save us from our enemies. We have enemies, real enemies, and you know who they are. You know exactly who they are. Everyone knows since they've, you know, could, you know, really comprehend what's going on that black people and Hispanics are treated differently, especially black people. You know this. You know this. And guess what? You know about the, the Negroes and all this stuff that they call us. You know about what's going on in our communities. You know. Why is it going on? The Bible is telling you Christ will come and redeem his people. So I encourage you Gentiles, get on the right side of this thing, okay? Or get rolled over. 
Because when Christ comes back, he's going to have the redemption of Israel in mind. So I encourage brethren, Jews and Gentiles, if you're in the military, you're going to want to find some alternative employment, okay? Because they're going to use the military to fight against Christ, claiming that it's an, it's an attack from, from wherever. Go look at Independence Day. That was about Christ, brothers and sisters. They know that Christ is coming back and he's coming from up there. So they want to have everyone locked and loaded to go against them. See? That's what salvation is. Luke 1 and 71. Now, let's go to Leviticus 25 and 23. We'll read the 23rd verse through the 25th verse. Leviticus 25 and 23 reads, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. For ye were strangers and sojourners with me. So brothers and sisters, it's telling you in the land of Israel, you couldn't sell land. You couldn't sell the land because it didn't belong to you. You were a steward, right? Let's read that again. Leviticus 25 and 23 reads, The land shall not be sold forever. For the land is mine, for ye were strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor, and have sold away some of his possessions, and any of his kins, his and any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. Brothers and sisters, what is this passage about? This passage regards the redemption of land. According to this text, Christ has the legal right to redeem and restore the promised land back to his rightful owners. I need you to look at this, brothers and sisters. Leviticus 25 and 23 reads, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for ye were strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor and have sold away some of his possessions, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother have sold. So here we see the importance of bloodline because of because legally restitution or restoration can only come from someone of the same lineage. That's clear, brothers and sisters. This is the importance of knowing that Christ is our bloodline. You see that? Because he can't he can't redeem the land of Israel for us if he's not our bloodline. He can't redeem anything. You see? We're going to go to Ezekiel 11 and 14. We're going to read 14 to 17. And we're going to close it. Ezekiel 11 and 14 reads, Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, thy brethren, thy, thy brethren, even thy brethren, the men of thy kindred, in all the house of Israel, holy are they. Unto whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get ye far from the Lord. Unto us is this land given into possession. And therefore, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Therefore, say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people 
and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Mm. Here we see the redemption of land by a kinsman redeemer. He said, listen, I'm going to free you. And I'm going to place you back in your land. I'm going to take the land back from the pagans, from the Gentiles. See, that's why you have Palestinians and the so-called Jewish Europeans over there fighting over the land. Because they both know the land don't belong to either one of them. They also know whoever, you know, possessed that land ruled the world. Brothers and sisters, the Jewish people are Esau, Edomites. Our big brother, remember? Jacob's big brother. And who who else? The Palestinians are who? <laughs> Ishmael. See? Ishmael was who? The big brother of Isaac. So they both feel slighted, brothers and sisters. And they've made a, a cons they've conspired together to come against us. Today's lesson, blessed are the eyes that see. Brothers and sisters, we went into a lot of information today uh, on the topic of redemption. You know, our church, we can go into prophecy and, and go into the law and, and what the white man did and all this stuff. But the number one thing that all Israelites, not just Israelites, Gentiles also, but specifically Israelites need to do more of. Get acquainted with the Messiah. Okay. A lot of us just, you know, we get into this Israelite thing and, and all we care about is the culture of Israel. Listen, I'm not trying to be an Israelite. Okay. I'm trying to be the Israelite. I'm trying to be Christ. Okay. So I'm not going to walk around and try to, you know, my main focus is being an Israelite. Listen, that's old. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm an Israelite. Thank God for it. But it doesn't matter. Because guess what? If you do wrong... You're going to hell. doesn't matter if you're Israel or not. Brothers and sisters. The title of today's lesson. Blessed are the eyes that see. We want to say. Kwam Yasharala. Sin no more. <laughs>